Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another episode of the Adventures in Advising podcast. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. Each episode, we strive to bring together the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and of course, advising stories. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. Without further ado, here's the latest episode, and as always, keep advising. Hello, and welcome to Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin. Welcome to the new year. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to our first episode of 2021. We have a couple of really insightful interviews coming up for you today. That is right. For the first episode of 2021, this now being episode 26, we have Jessica J.J. Jensen and Ernesto Guerrero. Just before those interviews, firstly, a big thanks to all our listeners for helping us to reach another milestone, seven and a half thousand downloads. We appreciate all those who have listened, shared or recommended the podcast. And thanks to all our guests over the the past year. Yes, thank you. And 7,500 downloads. That is awesome. Thank you so much to you for listening. And hey, we do listen as well. You may have noticed in the last couple episodes, we have been adding in how to contact guests if you have questions or want to further the conversation from their podcast interview. And that is thanks to you, specifically Kevin Thomas from University of Central Arkansas. Thank you, Kevin. Also, thank you to everyone who messaged me about Ray Navarro. Yes, Ray was such a great mentor and one of the most passionate people I've known who wanted to see each and every student succeed. Thank you again for those comments. You are all too kind. A shout out and thank you to Chris Winson, who included Adventures in Advising in the wonderful 365 Days of Compassion list of psychological and kindness resources. And you can find it on Twitter, hashtag 365 Days of Compassion, or the account is at 365 Days Compass, C-O-M-P-A-S-S. So let's jump into the interviews. First up is Jessica J.J. Jensen from Columbia College Chicago. It's a funny story how this interview came about, which we discuss in J.J.'s interview. But we also talk about how it was starting in an advising position when COVID hit and how that all worked out, as well as utilizing technology and even what a traveling artist is. I think you will enjoy this interview. And I know Lorraine Ambrosio messaged on our social media about being excited to listen to JJ's interview. So why wait any longer? Here you go. All right. So here we go. We have Jessica Jetson JJ, who is the advisor for musical theater and comedy writing at Columbia College Chicago. She moved to the area from Indiana, where she worked as the advisor for the Department of Theater and Dance at Ball State University. She also happens to be an alum of the Ball State Musical Theater Program. After undergrad, Jessica went to earn her BFA in acting and directing at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Jessica, along with her husband, lived the life of a traveling artist, working as an actor, director, and educator in New York City, Nantucket, Kansas City, Indianapolis, and more. Jessica is excited to call the Chicago area her new home. 
When she's not helping students, you can find her baking, cooking, camping, crocheting, and walking with her two golden retrievers. She's excited to guide students on their individual journeys. JJ, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. We're delighted to have the opportunity to speak to you. I mean, you have an absolutely fascinating bio that uh, Matt has just gone through. And maybe to to start, you could talk us through that a little bit and like your journey into higher education. Sure, sure. Happy to. So um, I found my way to higher education um, through a lot of twists and turns. You kind of heard briefly in my bio. So I started out as a student in... um, musical theater at Ball State University. So like a lot of my students that I work with now, um, the dream was to become a performer. And so I went through school there and found my way into museum theater and museum education. I know I didn't mention that in my bio, but that's kind of the way in which I kind of started to combine this love of theater and also the love of educating and sharing those experiences and tying those two together. And through that, I said, oh, I really want to learn more Plus, I'm kind of a nerd and I love school, so I'm going to go and pursue my master's degree. So um, I went and chose uh, the University of Missouri, Kansas City and went there. And while I was there, I confirmed for myself this thought I had previously, which was I wanted to be an educator. And (laughs) many people in my past had told me like, oh, you're such a great uh, teacher. You're great with little kids. And I was like, little kids are great but I don't want to be in the classroom with the littles. I like the bigs. So being getting my master's degree helped me um, understand that because I was able to be in the classroom with students, um, undergrad students while I was getting my master's. Um, and after that, that program, my husband and I, who's also a musical theater major, side note, we did meet on the stage. It was a showmance. Um, and yeah. Long story short, we're still together. (laughs) Um, But we both were just, we both had majors in musical theater. He had drifted off and done a little bit of arts administration, but still had a tie towards going to the big, the big city, like going to New York. And we thought, well, why not now? So we sold all of our belongings, our cars, everything. And we moved ourselves to New York City. Um, Got there, got an agent, started auditioning and found for myself that there was Something I loved the performance aspect of what I was doing, but I missed being with students and being a teacher. And I just I kept feeling this pull. I wasn't sure what to do about it and how to get there. Just because getting into higher education is it's a challenge, especially for young artists who are growing their resumes. It's it's usually the professors who have been through the ringer who become teachers and. Um, And anyway, so we were in New York and then my husband was like, gosh, wouldn't it be funny if I applied for this job on Nantucket? And I was like, ha, ha, ha. And then he got the job on Nantucket. (laughs) So we had been in New York for, I think, like seven months, not that long. And we packed up our belongings, our gorgeous dog, and got on a ferry and moved to Nantucket. And while I was there, I was able to really focus on the education part of what of my journey. It was a time for me to become work more on my directing skills and also my my curriculum development skills. Um, lots of other. I had jobs there. I mean, let's just say I can tell my students and their parents when they walk into my office that with a degree in theater you can do pretty much anything. And I'm talking like running and managing a greenhouse. 
that could be your job. <laughs> Developing garden programming for, for school programs for a nonprofit organization, you can do that too. All of this with a theater degree. So the possibilities are endless. <laughs> so while we're there, we um, so I got to work. I worked at a um, performing arts center there working with young, young children. And then I also worked with adults as a director at the professional theater there. My husband was the managing director of the professional theater on Nantucket. So, um, yeah, we were there for about three years. And then we decided we wanted to be a little bit closer to family. And our journey took us back to Kansas City. Um, where I, I explored what a lot of artists explore, which was auditioning and serving food, both of those things tied together. Um, and was there, found myself really missing teaching again and trying to find opportunities to grow, um, in that area. And then one day my husband was like, Hey, I saw this, um, post online for an advisor at Ball State. And I was like, get out of here. Like, for one, he said, for theater. So back home in Indiana at our alma mater, there's a position. And I said, oh, God, I'm not qualified. Um, but looking at my what the qualifications were, matching up with my passions and what I wanted to do, I got my materials together, my resume, all that stuff, and got an interview and landed that gig. And from there, we moved back to Muncie. I was in the same hallway where I was, <laughs> where I went and grew as an undergraduate student. And the best part about that was I also was able to teach. So I got to teach mm-hmm. undergraduate theater. I got to teach to majors and non-majors, which was such a great opportunity. And all the while, I am their advisor. So I'm able to learn and grow with them. And I think what made me realize how that advising was such a unique and special relationship is, is that I was able to connect with their, their dream struggle, I guess is a nice way to put it. It's this, this strong urge and desire within you to pursue this dream. And also while they're doing this, I would, I would encourage them. I'd say, this is, if this is what you want to do, do it by all means, but also I want you to just kind of open up the periphery and see Mm -hmm. what other things there are. And so otherwise you turn down these opportunities to to do things that lead you down these paths, like becoming an academic advisor, which not every undergraduate musical theater student wants to hear that they'll be doing that someday. But I, I was a perfect example, especially for those scared parents. Like there are so many things that you can do. Um, so while I was at Ball State, I love Ball State. I mean, it's it's my home. It 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 raised me, and so then I was happy to be there. Um, and then my husband got this job that we couldn't we called it the offer he could not refuse um, at a performing arts place here in Aurora, Illinois. And I started looking, and I landed this interview for a job with with Columbia, but also with musical theater students. And I felt so blessed. Um, to be able to have that interview. And then when I got the job, I was just over the moon. And since then, I, I started that job in April of this, of this year. So that's kind of my twisty turny journey to where we are today. (laughs) That's an absolutely fascinating story. (laughs) I mean, to think of all the places that that you've seen and being able to move and then moving back and then going back to Ball State I mean, a couple of things that stand out is, you know, when you were talking about when you when you heard about the job offering at Ball State, your immediate reaction was, 
oh, I don't meet the qualifications yeah. for that. I'm not good enough for that. And I feel like a lot of people think that immediately when, when there's like some type of opportunity, it's like, oh, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, oh, no, I do qualify for this. And then you ended up applying and, and mm-hmm. got it. And then you were mentioning about um, students and kind of like the tunnel vision. And it's like, no, just you know, got to get out of that tunnel and really be able to see that there's a wide variety of different opportunities if you just are open to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And and I think as advisors, that's something that we definitely try to help our students with. Now, you were mentioning now that you are at uh, Columbia College, Chicago. Um, can you, for those that don't know, can you talk a little bit about about Columbia College Chicago and then what your uh, responsibilities are now? Yeah. So Columbia College Chicago is a private institution in Chicago, Illinois. So we um, have a lot of different majors. A lot of things that we're well known for are the things in the TV and film areas. Um, Lots of dance, music, animation. We have these great programs where students are learning how to design games. Um, And so my area is the theater area, but specifically musical theater and comedy writing and performance. Um, we're one of the first programs in the country to have an undergraduate degree in comedy writing and performance. So we have these students who are coming with the big dream of being on SNL, writing comedy, being performers, improvisation artists, all those great, great things that they can do with this degree. Um, and so my role is specifically to work with those students and I work with them before they get here all the way up through when they leave. So I'm their advisor the whole time, which I think is so great because we, it's a chance for us to really build a relationship through those four years that they're here. And, um, I, I suppose you, you mentioned that, um, you know, you, at, uh, I think Ball State, there was that connection with the, I, I love your turn of phrase, the connection with the student's dream struggle. Um, is that yeah. something that, <laughs> you know, you, you still find in, in your role, uh, today? And do you think that, that your background may, you know, allows you to to connect obviously with with the students in in that way would it be possible for somebody who didn't come from a kind of a a theater background to 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 have that connection with that cohort of students yeah um i am able to still use that experience and i think one of the things i i i'm very upfront with my students about my background and kind of what i've been through just to, so they know like she she understands kind of where where i'm at um but my previous role at Ball State, I had a unique opportunity to, I worked with freshmen just during the orientation process. And I thought to myself before that experience of that orientation, I thought there's, could I ever do this with another group of students? Would I be able to connect with them? And are my skills like limited to this area? And it kind of freaked me out. I was like, oh no, what will happen if I want to want to leave and work with different students? But during that orientation, I was able to meet with students from accounting majors, veterinary science, nursing majors, pre-dental, like all these different areas. And I was able to see that there are, they have these same dreams. They are still, they are also in a dream struggle and they also have these tunnel visions and all these different areas. So I think I was able to use my experiences to connect with that dream struggle, I guess we're using now, um, with a variety of different students. And so I do think that there is value in having experiences in the field in which your students are pursuing, but I don't think that it's, it keeps you from being able to connect with students if you don't have a background in that. I think that 
it's just finding that human connection with that, you know, with those students in whatever field that they're pursuing. Yeah. And then with students that you're meeting with, I'm sure you've had questions from your students that are worried about, okay, what happens after they graduate now with everything that's going on in in the world? How do you respond to those students? I have a lot of students right now who are, who are experiencing, I'm sure a lot of us advisors all across the country are having this. Um, And what it's a unique struggle right now, because I think my students are recognizing that the performing arts theater, live theater, live performance, a packed house full of audience members is something that's not happening right now. The jobs that many of my seniors internships um, performance opportunities that they were supposed to have going off and doing the Disney college program after they've graduated, all those things have kind of shut down. But I think what I've tried to emphasize is that, that one, it's not going anywhere forever, that there's going to be ways that we're going to be getting back to this. But I also was just helping them understand that as artists right now, during this pandemic, where are you going for your entertainment and what are you seeing out there that's being done, right? So you're seeing live performances over Zoom and different kind of platforms that way. Um, students and, and performers are self-recording in their homes and they're learning how to put these things together. I always use the example of SNL at home, which is what they did um, Saturday Night Live. They did their last, I don't know, couple performance or couple shows um, from their homes. And I'm, and I told the students, I was like, no matter what people need the arts and they need what you're doing. And we are all going to adapt and find ways to, to do this thing and to produce this work. So don't say, or don't have that kind of doom thought that it's over from now. It's like, okay, here's the skills. How do I adapt this to this new world? Because I think as artists, students, Human beings, we are constantly having to just adapt to our changing environment. And that's that's what they're learning as theater artists to do. And now it's just going to be an added layer of challenge, especially those who are graduating. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Well, speaking of adapting and and challenging situations. You mentioned that you began this job in April 2020, which yes. would have been right in the, you know, at uh, the pandemic. And so can you talk to us about what that experience was like and, and what, you know, that the, did you, did you get to go in person? Did you get to, to meet with your coworkers? What was the onboarding process like? I, I, I have many questions around this. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> uh, I did, I started April, 2020 and I make a joke. I say, well, I logged out of Ball State and I logged into Columbia. It was the quickest transition into a job um, that I've ever experienced before. Um, and I did, I 
I got to be on campus very briefly for my in-person interview in February. Um, so that was before kind of everything started to shut down in March. So I met a, a handful of people that I'd be working with. And my, I met my direct supervisor, which was nice. So now I, I knew her in person, at least. Um, and then from there, it was... <sighs> I feel very fortunate. I got hired before a lot of those um, institutions started to kind of consider not hiring folks anymore. So I felt very fortunate to have that position and for them to be able to willing to work with me in starting this role remotely. The other great thing that happened that was, um, I don't know, just a really good, I don't know how to put this, but it just, it just happened at the right time. It was that a committee at Columbia had put together a online course to teach new advisors. And it was not intended for a pandemic learning experience, <laughs> but it worked for that purpose. Um, they had this course that's built on Canvas. It's our one of our learning um, services in, that we use. And it had different modules that just put me through the process. It started in Welcome, introduced me to a lot of people, took me through all the academic policies. And each day I would log on and meet with my supervisor. We'd talk through a couple things and then I would guide myself through the course. There were a couple hiccups in this process, which were like pages like, go down the hall and meet so-and-so. Well, <laughs> couldn't do that. <laughs> but luckily, so many of my colleagues were so open to me calling them on. We use a um, Microsoft Office Teams. It's like a chatting thing. So we can go back and forth, which is great. So I was able to call folks up and say, hey, I'm new. Who are you? <laughs> well, what do you do here? <laughs> um, and that made it really nice. And I'd say one of the best parts of that first week, because I was, I was intimidated by the amount of information, especially as we were approaching registration for the next semester. And like, here I was, you know, you know how registration time is. All of us advisors know that's like a crazy time. And I'm learning all this new information and trying to like navigate how I'm going to help these students um, at the same time. But at the end of that week, the activities committee <laughs> hosted a happy hour via Zoom. And it gave me such a sense of just calm and ease. I was able to see the people I work with on a non kind of you know, professional, very, you know, uh, level. So it really helped me. It just like gave me a breath. I said, Oh, these are people that I can connect with these, like, these are, it's human to human joking. I'm seeing my boss's boss's boss, like just have a good time and laugh and people are connecting with each other and welcoming me into this group. So that was really comforting. Um, as I, started that first week and that, that course continued through and um, I started to shadow other advisors and instead of being in their offices I would just pop in on their zoom sessions so that was really helpful to see how they were working and um, then I started to feel like I wonder how I'm going to get to know my students and that's when I started to figure out ways in which to connect with them and introduce myself on a more personal level. Um, do you want me, do you want me to go into some of those things? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so when one of the, one of the benefits to the job, I think is just 
is those connections that you make with students is being um, an ally, being a mentor, being a resource, being the person that they come to and they have questions and um, kind of a trusted, a trusted advisor. And in order to build those relationships, I just felt like, oh, I need a way to for these students to see me and to know me. They can't come to my office right now. They're not passing me in the hallways like they used to do in Ball State. And like, who is that? Oh, that's the advisor kind of thing. So I started sending video updates and they I started using YouTube. So I would record little short YouTube videos. My first was about 42 seconds long just me sitting at a, at a table and just saying, hi, my name is JJ. I'm your advisor. I'm really looking forward to working with you. If you have any questions, continue. And after I said that, I got a lot of responses from students like, nice to meet you. I'm excited. And, and all those great things and messages that were coming through. And I thought, okay, maybe this is a way for them to get to know me. So maybe I'll keep this up a little bit. So I started to do a video every, every week. It was very informational at first, but then my dog would interrupt and like little nose would pop up and I'd be like, Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, my dog, but I didn't edit it out. I just thought that's human. Like, of course they can see that. But then I got responses about the dogs. So then it grew into, hi, here's JJ. And Oh, let me just update you about the dogs. (laughs) Um, and it became a, t- a, a way for me to connect with them on a personal level as well as just talking about sharing struggles. Like, how are you dealing with your quarantine? Um, we talked about, I did a video all about recipes uh, to make in your microwave in your dorm room when you got to Columbia. Um, and some more serious things, just saying, um, acknowledging their struggles and, and saying, you know, I know we're coming up on times where things are getting tough. And I want you to know that I'm right there with you. We're all in this together kind of experience, just so they also understood that I was on their level um, as well. And yeah, it's, it just, it's just opened up so many conversations with students, especially in advising appointments and like over Zoom. They'll say, oh, how are the dogs? And I'll get to walk my computer over and show them the dogs sleeping. And it's a simple thing that may not seem like... It's important, but it really is. It's just, it just mm-hmm. allows students and myself to just take a breath and be human for a moment before we jump into, well, I graduate on time. <laughs> right. Well, if you kind of think about it, it's, you have the appreciative advising approach. And in that they have like the disarm phase where mm-hmm. some of the tips are, you know, put things in your office that are about you. And that, you know, you connect with that maybe your students can connect with. And in a sense, that's almost what we're doing in Zoom now, where if you have something in your background or you have your dog pop in, (laughs) you know, it's a way for students to see that you are a real person and maybe you could connect on something on that level. And so it's, it's, you know, even though we're miles apart we still can have that connection online through, through technology. Now, one of the things like as a new advisor, you know, since uh, April, not being able to actually like, let's say meet with your students is through zoom. You know, you talked about meeting maybe your supervisor, a couple other colleagues, <laughs> but you haven't met everybody. And, you know, you're talking about also with like the training, uh, the online training that said, go see an advisor, go down the hall. You don't have that experience uh, with that. Um, so all you, all you really see is just the box with the person in it. Um, how has that been 
like, do you feel like, you know, you talk about making that connection with students. Have you felt like you've been able to make that connection with the other advisors that, that, that you work with? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yes, and that's because I think I got a, I got a sense of the office culture during that first happy hour that I saw. And I saw that folks were asking about each other's children, asking about people's lives, teasing. There's one advisor I work with, his name is Rich, and he is a hoot. I'll tell you what, he just gives it to everybody who logs in. He's got jokes. So I said, I, I got a sense of um, their willingness to want to connect with each other. And each time we get on Zoom for one of these, even a staff meeting, everybody's like, oh, I miss you. I wish that we could see this. And so I took that as a invitation to reach out to other advisors. And so I have, I'm, I'm working in a couple committees that connects me to other advisors outside of our small little group. So we have several little small groups that are led by a supervisor. So everybody's got these little tiny little homes. And I started to work on some committees to reach out to folks and then just setting up like lunches and saying, Hey, um, I just want to get to know you a little bit. So I've had a couple of those, which has been really nice. And it's helped me develop relationships with folks that are, um, in, not in my same small group that I see once a week. So that's been, that's been a real nice benefit to everything. And, and my, um, my supervisor, I've been to the office, so I have been there twice, two times. They started this whole, maybe people will come in once a week. It was a sad, lonely place <laughs> with <laughs> two people in the office. And we just to have a presence of a student stop by. And I was able to meet my boss's boss and my boss's boss's boss. <laughs> and they were super friendly, stopping by, letting me you know, get to know them a little bit. And they each also reached out um, via Zoom and I got to sit down with them and, and talk with them as well. So it's just, it's an environment of um, collaboration and, and um, just familiarity. Uh, now, one of the things um, that I, I, I have to ask, because as, as interested as your students are in the dogs, I know many of our listeners will be. And we were talking to uh, the wonderful Quentin Alexander from George Mason University uh, a couple of episodes back and his dog started barking. And we asked him, people always want to, to know about the dogs. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about your dogs? I can. I love them so much. <laughs> um, so I have two, they're two rescue mutts. They're mostly mutts, but they have a um, big fluffy golden retriever fur, which makes me vacuum a thousand times a week. Um, so L Lola, we got Lola when she was a puppy and she just turned 10. Um, so she's moved with us every time we have moved. So she's been all over the world or this, the U.S. And uh, then Ludington, we got three years ago he's three years old now and he's also a golden retriever mutt we got him when he was a 
a puppy as well. Both are rescues from some shelters down south. And Lola's super chill, like really relaxed, super lover. And then my other one's a, a, an absolute terror. He's he's all heart and all love, but man, does he does he destroy a lot of things. My ear my earpod thingies were the victim last week. He ate the whole thing. <laughs> and then you just look at him. He just looks at you like, oh, I'm just so innocent and I'm so sorry. I don't know any better. And you're like, okay. Okay. <laughs> they just give you those eyes and you're like, oh, I forgive you. No problem. They do. They. I don't know what they're going to do when we go back to work because they're very, I'm, they're loving what's happening right now. So you were mentioning, you know, having the life of a traveling artist. And I do want to know, like, what have you found to be like the joys of doing of being a traveling artist, but also the not so joys of that life? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's so exciting. I mean, my husband and I are expert packers, we can pack up our entire lives and move to a new state really fast. <laughs> um, you become super adaptable, you in theater, and I and I'm sure this I share this with other industries and um, communities, but you become a tight family with a group that you're performing with really fast, and so you form these relationships. So I have pockets of people all over the country that I've grown these relationships with, and I think that's so special because then you 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 just have these connections that you can reach out to. It's like, Hey, I have this group of folks who lives in California that I'm close to from doing this show and this show. Um, it opens up collaborations to work with each other in, in different ways that way. Um, and I'd say, I mean, the, the pros were, I just, I saw a lot. I met a lot of people. I had a lot of different jobs. I mean, if I wrote down seriously all the jobs I've had, it would, it would overwhelm uh, somebody reviewing my application. <laughs> um, it's a lot. Um, but I, the cons are, I mean, you're, you're away from your family, you know, getting home, especially when we lived on Nantucket. If you wanted to leave and go home to see anybody, if there was a family issue, it was a 24 hour journey, planes, trains, and automobiles, we called it. Um, and, you know, establishing different traditions and rituals of being in your home and in, in a certain town and things like that. You cut, you miss out on that being a, a traveling artist. I mean, you, you get creative, you work on different um, traditions and things like that to, to carry with you to the different places you go. But being in one place for a, for a bit of time has a lot of benefits. And that's an, uh, another reason why higher ed and working in this field has been such a joy because I have been able to set to sit a little bit and settle. Um, it hasn't stopped me from doing shows and performing and being creative, but it um, has helped me to be in a one house for longer than before. It was like, we were staying places like one or two years. I think our goal here is maybe to stay five years, but every time we say that we move somewhere. So I'm like hesitant to say how long we want to be here. <laughs> I don't want to go anywhere, but <laughs> Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier on, I suppose, the, the way in which you utilized video to, you know, engage and, and connect with, with students. Mm -hmm. And I suppose both Matt and I can attest to to the power of video and, and in terms of collaboration and, and, and generating those connections. Is it something that you could see yourself using in a hopefully, you know, not too distant post -pand pandemic uh, future? Yes, I do. I, I also, I started an Instagram page as well because I was just seeing that my students, they want that fast, quick information. So I said, why not? We're going to start this as well. Um, just to keep us connected. Who's, who's going to read their email? Who's going to check their Instagram? We'll, we'll see. 
but I, I see a lot of benefits in these, in these video tutorials and introductions to keep us together because I know that I'm not going to see every single student in my office every single semester. And if they have a question or if they are, um, you know, it sparks, it sparks questions that are unrelated to my dogs that are sometimes related to their academics. They'll see my video and they're like, oh yeah, Jess, I have a question about um, this um, requirement. Do I need that? And gosh, I've emailed you a thousand times about these things, right? You send these very detailed official emails and they don't read them, which, cause they get a lot of them, I get it. But then this sparks that question and I'm able to capture them. I think that that's still going to be useful as we move forward. Um, I also am seeing that some students are able to meet with me more frequently because they are able to log into Zoom between classes. And that's not always an option when they have to run to a different building. Being in a city, we're, we're several buildings. So if they're between a dance and an acting class and they're sitting in the hallway eating a granola bar, they can pop in and see me for 20 minutes. Um, and I hope that that's something that we can continue. Doesn't mean I don't want to see them in person. I still want that. But being able to connect with them however they can get in, I see a great benefit in that. Yeah. And if anything, we, we've proven that we can do those things. So, you know, it's one of those where you keep hearing, we're not necessarily going to go back to normal. So hopefully that means we do incorporate some of this as much as, you know, we will still have probably the um, classes on campus. Hopefully it's one that we can incorporate like hybrid models or some more online classes. Because for, let's say, Cal State San Bernardino, where I work, we also have a Palm Desert campus. So that's, you know, over an hour away. And we have students that sometimes take classes at both those campuses. So yeah. if they need to, you know, have an appointment with us in between, like maybe on, on the shuttle ride from one campus to the other, they can jump on Zoom and have an appointment with us. But you were mentioning Instagram, and that's actually how we met. Um, yes. And so I'll tell that story. <laughs> so you, you messaged our Adventures in Advising um, IG, uh, Advising Podcast, if you want to follow anybody. Um, and mm -hmm. you sent us a message, and you sent it back in September. I didn't see it until six weeks later after that. And I don't know how I did. And I know I kind of sound like a, one of my students sometimes. <laughs> I didn't see that email. I didn't know I had a hold on my account. <laughs> But I'll say like when I went to the messages, like you have like the general column and the primary column and it popped up as a new request. Um, and honestly, again, I, I didn't see it. But when I did, I was like, oh, my goodness, like six weeks later, here I am going to respond back. Luckily, you were super nice about it. You're like, no worries, no problem. I was so excited. But, I mean, eventually, yeah, eventually then that communication kind of turned into now having this, uh, which is awesome. So anyone listening, reach out to us and, you know. We have, you know, give us some suggestions on topics and then, you know, hey, we'll have you on, on as a guest as well. But, um, you know, yeah, I definitely think that Instagram or YouTube, very creative ways. And it seems like definitely you've had a great response uh, from students um, uh, with that. And um, I think with your YouTube channel, has there been a, a favorite one that students have really kind of liked from your YouTube cooking videos? <laughs> you know what? I think they've responded really well to the mug like putting, you know, I, I got cake mix and like made these little mug cakes or, um, for them. Um, the other, I think they, they haven't really responded to any of the other ones. The other ones I did was just like lunch suggestions, like little silly things, but the videos that I got the most response to was one that I made when I was out, I was out on a walk by myself and I just was inspired to like talk to the students. I like, I, it was a really like hard 
day for me personally, it just felt, I felt very like drained from zoom. I felt very disconnected from the world. And I was like, I wonder how my students are feeling today. So I just reached out to them like in that space for me mentally, just like I'm, I'm on the struggle bus today with feeling disconnected, being like zoom tired and all these things. And I'm wondering what you all are doing to care for yourself. I stepped out to go for a walk. Is that something that you're able to do to help? Um, if you need anything, you know, reach out to me. I'd be happy to connect with you all. And that was the one that got the most response, honestly, out of all, out of even the dog videos. It was that one. <laughs> Students were like responsive to. Yeah. I think empathy is and and that connection piece. So and and the fact that that you were prepared to to be vulnerable and and to be human and and to I think people will respond to that and and it's it's good to hear that 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 the students did. Now we've talked there I suppose about new things that that you've implemented recently. Um, we are recording this in in December, but the the episode is is um, going to come out in January. I suppose as we look forward to twenty twenty one. Uh, do you have, um, you know, particular hopes for the year or things that you, you want to, to implement? I, I, don't, I don't want to necessarily use the word resolution, but uh, things that you're maybe even looking forward to in 2021. Yeah. So I'd say there's two things. So on a on a work level, um, I I love seeing my students work and do their their art. I, I was somebody who at Ball State was watching their master classes. So going and watching them sing, I was always going to all the shows. I wanted to see what they were creating. I participated in a lot of student projects. They would ask me to act in their movies or read their play. I said, oh, fine. Um, and that is something that I want to continue with while um, next year with my students in both musical theater and comedy writing and performance. I'd like to develop a little bit of a salon so having the students come in on a Zoom and encouraging them to share something if we want to read a play, if we want to sing songs and and just getting to them to share with each other and also for me to get to see what they create. Just and right now there's such a um an absence for them to get to express themselves in these in these formats. So I was like, well, why not have this advising salon? I'm looking to see what I'm going to do a doodle poll and see what times would work best for students or if there's an interest level there, we'll see how, how that goes. Um, I was inspired because a student of mine has a hilarious um, Instagram live kind of video series where he plays a really funny disc jockey and he had me on as like an injured, his injured um, person who runs the board in the back. Like I got attacked by an owl or something. It, it was, it was fun, but just to get able to be able to connect with them with their, their art that way. So that's kind of, that's my work resolution is to create that artistic salon. And then personally, um, I am, I am expecting a child in April. Congratulations. So, <laughs> Thank you. So be just to be able to um, balance just what it's going to look like to have um, a new part of my family in this very different world and um, making not getting too freaked out about what that's going to look like. So, yeah, that's that's kind of where I am, am for 2021. And as many institutions probably will continue being online or have some sort of hybrid format, there might be institutions that are going to be maybe implementing some of these online trainings, uh, let's say, for onboarding new advisors. Now, having gone through that, um, even though, of 
that online one eventually wasn't supposed to necessarily be a full online uh, training, <laughs> but eventually did. Do you have any suggestions for institutions that might be trying to implement that from like a new advisor standpoint of what went well and maybe suggestions on how to improve upon it? Absolutely. I am so grateful for that material. Um, my supervisor is very receptive to questions and super quick to respond. But as I'm learning the just everything new here. It's been a quick reference guide for me the whole way through. It answers questions for me very quickly. It's all broken down in these different modules that allows me to find information very quickly. And um, it's something that I would have I would have loved to have even in my previous job. I was trained in person. I had that in-person contact and everything. Um, but just to have that quick question answered and you have that answer right there, accessible on that Canvas page, um, I would say absolutely. If I was going to add anything to it from for the for another person who wants to create this kind of training, um, I would say more interactive like test questions, a little bit like quizzes. <laughs> that might be the student part of me, but there was um, at the end it, it had like a lot of wrap ups of sections and kind of different open open ended questions. But I craved a quiz. I was like, I just learned all this. I'd love to put it down and get a gold star. <laughs> JJ, I think we have like, it's been really interesting. I mean, everything from ideas around what to do with, with your students in, in a virtual environment and the simple things such as just, you know, creating that Instagram page or the, the videos, ideas around virtual onboarding that institutions can, uh, can utilize. You, you talked at the beginning about your, your kind of passion for education was always there as as an undercurrent and no matter what you did and i think it, it's not an undercurrent it is it is incredibly evident the the work that you put in um and and the the joy you take from seeing your students um you know thrive uh, and and adapt in in this new environment um you are also a magnificent storyteller so thank you uh this has been a, a wonderfully entertaining uh interview and uh really appreciate you taking the time to um chat to, to matt and myself today and thank you for for reaching out on instagram it's been brilliant absolutely i really appreciate you all having me this has been a, a real joy so thank you very much and if listeners wanted to connect with you to chat about being a new advisor being trained virtually about uh, being a traveling artist or about columbia college uh, chicago <laughs> Is there any way they can uh, reach out to you? Absolutely. So you could reach out to me through that Instagram. It's there. It's at JJ Advises. Or you could email me. My email is J-E Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N at Colum, C-O-L-U-M dot E-D-U. That was a great interview and fantastic insights from JJ on using video to connect and engage with students and also some ideas for virtual onboarding. So plenty of takeaways from that interview. We have a fantastic interview with Ernesto Guerrero, who is the Director of Academic Advising at CSU Channel Islands coming up. All right, we have Dr. Ernesto Guerrero, who is the Director of Academic Advising at CSU Channel Islands. In his over 20 years of experience in higher education, he has served as an academic advisor, trainer for advisors, student success course instructor, and director of a lower division advising program at UCLA. 
He has also served as an adjunct professor for educational leadership at California Lutheran University. He has a bachelor's degree in psychology with minors in education studies and applied developmental psychology, a master's degree in counseling and student affairs, and a doctorate in educational leadership, all from UCLA. His research interests center on academic advising best practices and student success and retention in underrepresented student groups. Ernesto, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Matt and Colin. Really appreciate you having me on. Well, we're very pleased to have the the opportunity to get to chat to you and uh, a really interesting bio that Matt has kind of gone through. But um, one of the things we like to do with guests at the beginning is to kind of talk about your your journey into into higher ed, becoming an advisor. Um, you know your your route to, to becoming the uh, director of academic advising at CSUSI. Um, uh, CI, sorry. Um, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how you know your your path into higher ed. Sure, definitely. Well, uh, I'm I'm unapologetically a higher ed nerd and <laughs> have been for a long time. Uh, my interest was first sparked when I took a sociology of higher education class as an undergraduate, and they started looking at you know I first heard the terms of retention and student success and time to degree and and realized that that you know what we do and how we study as students at the time myself is something that people study you know it's something that, that that's that's of interest to folks. And I had already been considering working in education um, in maybe in the K-12 world, uh, but I really didn't feel that that, that passion for, for being you know, on stage as a teacher. And I had the opportunity to be a peer advisor for the education studies minor. So they trained us and we would answer questions for students, you know, basic questions on scheduling and things like that. And, you know, I, again, being a higher ed nerd, I would, and sometimes in my spare time, I would read the catalog, you know, back when we had printed catalogs. So I like, that's something that I enjoy, like navigating, what are the rules? What are the classes? What can I double count? Things like that. So it was kind of a natural fit for me. And then I thought, this is something I want to do as a career. And it's, so it turned out that there was a, a new, relatively new uh, master's degree program in counseling and student affairs at UCLA. So I thought, well, let's, let's apply to it. So um, fortunately I got into that program and I got to do an internship in, um, I thought maybe I want to go into housing. So I did an internship in housing. Realized during that internship that I do not want to go into housing, <laughs> but it's great to find that out in an internship. That's what the, those are. Those are for. And so um, it was kind of the dream situation. I uh, was there's 15 people, 15 people in my cohort. Uh, I applied for a position as the advisor for the Department of Spanish and Portuguese at UCLA as the, the, the basically the department advisor. Um, and I graduated on Saturday. I started work on Monday. It was like, you know, you couldn't write it any better. Um, so I did. So that's where, where I started, basically working as an as a advisor for students doing a Spanish major, a Spanish and Portuguese major, Spanish and linguistics major. So that was really my entry there in, into higher ed. And, um, you know, I started kind of moving along there. Uh, it didn't take long for me to get the itch to get back into school. So that's when I applied to the doctoral program at UCLA, which was perfect because it was designed for people who are working full time. So the classes are evenings and weekends. Um, so that just worked out really well. Um, during that time, I moved over to the College of Letters and Science, which is the largest uh, school college uh, on, on UCLA, on the UCLA campus, and that's more general advising. And that's where I got introduced to um, the idea of, of advisors reviewing 
petitions, being a part of deciding whether a student gets, you know, is disqualified or dismissed for academic reasons and deciding on appeals and that sort of thing. And within that structure, I started as an advisor, then I became trainer for new advisors. Um, and then uh, in my last position there, I was coordinator for a, a program where we trained graduate students who were doing master's degrees and PhD degrees to be advisors for lower division students. So they mainly worked with the first year freshmen and second year students um, and any students who wanted mentoring on applying to grad school. So I oversaw and trained all, all and hired all of those folks. And um, that's what did that for, for, for a few years. And then that's when um, life changed, got married and moved out to a different part of, of California. So we moved uh, to uh, Ventura County, which is about 50 miles um, north of, of Los Angeles. And here's the local university here, State University is Cal State Channel Islands. And fortunately enough, there was a position for director of advising and I applied and, and I got the position. So that's where I'm at now. Nice. And you mentioned like looking at paper catalogs. I mean, I remember I used to work in admissions and we had to determine if classes were transferable and met admission requirements. We had to go across the hall to our office of the registrar that housed like all of our CSUSB catalogs plus catalogs from a lot of the other California schools. And now it's just so easy. Just go online and find oh, yeah. an online bulletin. Oh, yeah, totally. You know, one of the things that we did as an, as an advisor, you said, is we had to occasionally we'd have your student who came back, you know, 30 years later, who never finished a degree and wanted to come back. So we actually had every catalog going back to the first one of 1919. So we had every single catalog there. So that was just great going back and just looking at like, you know, the home economics courses that they actually taught at the university, you know, things like that. So, um, so yeah, it was just a, a different, different era. <laughs> or if you had to look at returning students' transcripts, we used to have them on Microfish. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had to do a special request, and then Richard had to go dig it up, get the Microfish out, and then, yeah, totally, we had to do that, that kind of review. The, the, the student, it was in the mid-2000s, in the, in, the, in, in the, yeah, 2008 or so, we had a student who left in, in the mid-50s to, to come back and finish, and he actually did finish. Nice, well, good for them. Now, you know, you used to do training for advisors. Any advice you would have for maybe new advisors that are starting pretty much in this virtual environment, as well as those that are creating uh, training now for advisors where they have to do it through Zoom or Canvas or Blackboard? Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, we're kind of in that situation with, with our staff. We had just hired three new advisors literally two months before everything shut down. So they started in January. So they got a little bit of the in-person. So what I would say is um, definitely have have a process in place, regardless of whether it's delivered in person or, or, or virtually. Um, that was one of the, the things that, that I wanted to do when I came to, to, to CI is, is have a, a, a more kind of standardized process. So we actually, I used to use a manual, a physical manual, well, it was digital too, at UCLA, and we actually switched that to do um, a Canvas course. Uh, at CI. So at CCCI, we have actually have a Canvas course, which is great because we can update that as needed, you know, as things change, as rules change, as curriculum changes. Uh, we can add links. It's much more dynamic. And that's the, the what our main tool for for training new advisors. So we basically, we start off there and it's really, I, I kind of consider it sort of a building blocks type of process where you start at the very basic concept of like, what's the definition of credit? You know, well, we have unit credit, you have subject credit, you know, very basic, and then start building with the curriculum and the GEs and all the requirements, um, all at the same time, testing with real life cases. So I always have 
Um, and, and my, my associate director who does more of the actual day-to-day training, she has, um, you know, files and lists of, of actual student cases as examples, right? So, and then that's great because we know there's always these weird situations. So we want to keep a file of those to say, like, well, what would you do in this case? You know, mm-hmm. so it's a teaching and then they repeat it, but then also, okay, so let's give you a practical example. How would you handle the situation? And then we do shadowing as well. And we've done shadowing even in the Zoom format where the person shadowing will just, they won't put their actual, they'll put like an image up. So it's less intrusive, you know, but we do do that as well. And that's, I think what we're going to continue to do whenever we do go back to in-person. That's um, really comprehensive. Sounds um, really good. Now, one of the things that um, Matt mentioned in your bio, I suppose, that's interesting to me because we don't have in in an Irish context is the you did a master's degree in counseling and student affairs. And in an Irish context, we don't have, I suppose, um, particularly at at master's, a postgrad level, courses dedicated to student affairs student services student success things like that so I, I suppose can you talk to me a little bit about like what it what it was that you studied um on that course i just think it might be really interesting to our, our listeners outside the u.s but maybe even for listeners within the u.s who, who didn't study a master's in that area sure you know and it's actually it was a unique program because in general, the UCs don't have a lot of these more practical programs. That's generally the purview of of, um, of the CSUs, right? And some of the the more uh, East Coast schools that have some of these programs. So it was divided really pretty evenly between um, basic counseling techniques, um, and it was basic counseling, counseling with diverse populations, um, you know, mediation, that types of those interpersonal techniques, along with student affairs like higher ed structure, administration, leadership, that kind of thing. So it was really kind of bifurcated, you could say, right? It's the the interpersonal along with what is higher education, how is it structured, what's academic affairs versus student affairs, what's normally within those divisions, how is that how does that how is that created? What's the we had, we had a history of higher ed course as well, for example. So that's how that sort of was divided and and it it is it is unique in, in that I I've seen other programs and I think Various programs will will emphasize one or the other of those to different degrees, right? If you look at at other, um, at least in the U.S., you have some programs that are really more higher educational leadership, right, and administration, and some that are more really just counseling. And so you might have a, a you know leaning more towards one or the others. What I liked about this program was that it really was divided pretty equally into both parts. Yeah, absolutely. And now at Channel Islands, um, for those that don't know, can you talk a little bit more about CSU Channel Islands? Sure. So we're we're one of the the CSUs, which is a, the the largest uh, public school um, system, I think, in in the country, if not the world. Uh, Twenty three campuses. Um, we are the youngest of those campuses. We are uh, nineteen years old, I think. Uh, to the founded in two thousand one. So uh, we are also uh, one of the smallest. We're at about 7,000 students. Uh, obviously, everyone's taking a dip in enrollment right now, but we're at roughly around, around 7,000 students, which is similar to the size of uh, one of our other sister schools, um, CSU Monterey Bay, for example, similar size. Uh, but we have a, a pretty wide array of majors. We have 23 majors. Um, we have a few grad programs. Um, one of the, the main areas that, that we have is we have a, a nursing program, for example, that is, that is competitive. You have to apply to get into that program. 
Um, but we serve uh, Ventura County, like I said, is, is the neighboring county to, to LA. So we're um, we're in between like the next uh, CSU, the next Cal State University, go moving up the, the, the map is uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, right? Which is like another 50, 60 miles up the coast. So we kind of fit that that sort of uh, niche in between uh, Cal State Northridge, which is a huge 30,000 plus student campus and more in the LA area and San Luis Obispo. So we kind of fit the niche for the population here, which is primarily first generation, primarily uh, Latinx. Um, we're a Hispanic serving institution, which is a federal designation uh, where we have to have at least 25%. We're more like closer to 40, 50% of our population uh, and increasing every year uh, Latinx. So we serve a primarily first generation working class um, population here, which is great because I think um, we really focus on kind of the life changing aspects of, of completing a, a degree. And uh, so we all our focus is really trying to work towards, you know, serving those students and making ourselves our campus uh, student ready as much as possible. Great. And uh, you are the, the director of academic advising. So you are in a, in a leadership uh, role. Could you talk to us a little bit maybe about your approach to leadership and for advisors who might be listening, who are interested in, in you know, taking the next step up in their career and getting into to leadership, would you have any advice for them? Definitely. So um, I, I've, I've taught um, a, a class on this at, at, at Cal Lutheran University, also in Ventura County, in, in their doctoral program on, on higher ed leadership. And, and I really um, am a fan of, of the, the idea of, of servant leadership, the idea of um, serving not just the people with who, who are who are who you're leading, but also the, the, the population, whether it's if you're um, if it's you're working in, in retail, your customer base, in our case, students are really trying to serve the population and serve the, the, your um, your staff. Right. So in what does that translate to? I, to me, that translates into empowering my staff, uh, empowering my staff to challenge me and challenge any ideas that I bring up, uh, being open and transparent, um, really inviting uh, vigorous discourse. I want, not that I want disagreement, but I don't want people to just say yes, because I'm proposing it. It's like, what am I, give me, show me my blind spots. What am I not seeing here? You know, and because they are the ones that are seeing students more more on a day-to-day basis than I am. I want to not lose touch with that, you know? So even though I can't necessarily see the same number of students that they're seeing through them, I want to know what's going on. And there's been times when I'll propose something and then, you know, folks will push back and say, well, I don't think it's a good idea for X, Y, and Z. And then I'll agree, you know, I'm going to defer to, to, to them. And then along with that is also really trying to develop them, my staff, as leaders within their own area, right? Um, there's the title, you know, of being an administrator and there's the, the, the position, but but you can exert and demonstrate leadership in whatever position you have. So um, making sure that they have ownership of whatever uh, program they're, they're, they're developing, be it a workshop, be it an event, be it, um, for example, the person who, who oversees our peer advising, you know? Um, a lot of times they'll come to me and say, well, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? And I say, well, what do you think? You know, I'll kind of put it back to them. I'll say, this is your program. You know, like I'm happy to help you. I'm happy to mentor you. Uh, but this is, this is yours to lead. And, and, you know, and then we'll assess afterwards. If, if it was success, success, great. Let's, you know, recreate the successful parts. If it didn't work out, let's analyze and, and, and change it. But there's no harm in, in trying something new. 
And that's, that's the other thing in terms of philosophy. I really, really am a big proponent of trying to think outside the box, as cliche as that, that is, thinking of different solutions, thinking of things that, that, that I've not heard of. I really try to lean on my new advisor and say, like, you were just in a grad program. You're more up on the, on, on the research than I am. You know more about what's going on. You've read these articles more recently than I have. What are we doing that we could be doing differently? You know, I, I really do not want to get stuck on the, well, this is the way we've always done it, you know? And so for folks that are wanting to get into leadership, I think for me is volunteer for as much as you can, even if there's no recognition in it or no remuneration, no, no payment for anything like that. Volunteer and jump on these opportunities because the, the extent you do that and do well, people will notice. People will start to notice. And you start to get invited to do more of those and to participate in more of these events. And that leads to more noticing of what you're doing. And it builds your resume, too. You know, so I think is that, that volunteering, knowing that you're putting in this time now for rewards down the line. Yeah. And it's it's a balance, though, right? Because the more you get mm-hmm. you volunteer for things, the more it gets added to your plate. But you still have like you're still your current responsibilities you have to do for for your job. True. Yeah. That's true. And I, and I try to tell my, my, my staff, too, you know, like I try to be conscious because I will ask, but I'll say, but I want you to be honest with me. Like, is this something that you can take on right now? You know, and I don't. I, I don't ding them for saying no, you know, that, that's okay. Cause I, as much as, yeah, you want to try to do that, do that. You still need to set boundaries for yourself so that you're not then overstretched, you know, and, and then which could then obviously lead, lead to burnout. So definitely a good point there. Yeah. And I think it's also just employees knowing that they can say no. Sometimes they feel pressured that, Oh, well, if I'm being asked, I need to do it. And now I need to stay up all night or work over the weekend. It's mm-hmm. like, no, I mean, you could only do what you can do. Exactly. Exactly. Now, you wrote an article about um, titled Academic Advising and the Evaluation of Student Petitions, a Vehicle for Student Equity and Justice. And, um, you know, you briefly also mentioned decision making. Um, But I think before we get into that, um, I think maybe we can kind of set this up in a sense where at Channel Islands, can you talk about what the advising structure looks like at your institution? Sure. So we are, because we're a relatively small campus, we have our one centralized advising office. Mm -hmm. So it's just us. We're staff of 12 with one administrative analyst and associate director and then the advisors. Right. So um, so we do the the advising for for all undergraduate students um, that are not doing, for example, like a credential program or extending university program. So all your typical undergraduate students. Um, We have three colleges on our campus. Um, but really it's one big one and two smaller ones. So we have the, the uh, you know, arts and sciences, which is 80% of our students. Then you have the Martin B. Smith School of Business and our School of Education, which have, uh, business is a relatively large major, but it's really, they only have business in it and, and economics, for example. And then the School of Education, which has some graduate programs and credential programs, but they also have an early childhood studies and a liberal studies uh, major, which prepares students who do early education and um, elementary and high school teaching to go on to, to a credential. But we do um, we do the advising for all undergraduates. And most recently this year, we've um, switched, sort of shifted into uh, our office also doing really the majority with a couple of exceptions, which I'll, I'll list in a second. We also do the major advising for those, for, the, for all those majors. So we do what you typically see a centralized office do, which is your lower division, undeclared um, students in academic difficulty, maybe grad checks, that, that, that kind of thing. But then we've also taken on what 
at many universities, many smaller universities in particular, is handled by either faculty advisors or a separate set of professional advisors that are that are housed in those programs. And this is a shift that we've been we've been working on since I came on, um, because while faculty advisors are are serve a great purpose and and many of them are super dedicated to, to working with students, that's also not what they were necessarily trained to do, right? So um, what I was was envisioning was let's take the best of what they offer in serving students, which is really mentoring, uh, talking about graduate school, talking about uh, prof- uh, professions beyond, uh, um, you know, when they graduate, uh, talking about the differences between what's social psychology versus, you know, behavioral psychology, right? What's, um, you know, uh, environmental studies that, that are working you know, with marine life versus more, you know, on the, um, you know, on, on land, that kind of thing, like more specifics within their discipline, right. That they can definitely talk to and talk about and leave more of the day to day. Here's your degree audit. Here are the, here are the, the courses that you need. Um, here's what you need to graduate. Here's the deadline for dropping this course, more of that kind of thing to, to folks in our office, since that's what we are, are, are trained to do. Um, and it's, it's been working out pretty well, actually. We do have a, a few programs that, 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 that still want to, you know, do more of their, their faculty advising to do that work. And our approach was we're happy to, to be as involved or not involved as you want us to be within this process. And, but the vast majority have been, yeah, let, let, let's go ahead and, and do this. But also with, with the built in, um, communication to, to those programs. So we have monthly, um, if not more frequent, um, meetings with our advisors and the chairs or the faculty advisors within those programs. So it's a two-way street. So then we can, they can communicate to us. Here's what you need to know about the curriculum. Here's um, what, these are the exceptions that we make on a regular basis. Here's ones that we never make. And then we can communicate back and say like, here's what we're hearing from students. It seems like there's a, there's a uh, bottleneck with this particular course or this course of course is, li- is limited to these majors, but this one's not. Um, so it's, it's been a really good productive sort of two-way street there. And the way that I set it up was we have our advisors and I put them in sort of clusters. Um, so, for example, for our STEM majors, we have three advisors who um, all trained and all worked with the faculty so that they all can, you know, became well-versed in those majors. So now when a student logs in to our, our system, which we use um, EAP Navigate, so basically a student logs in and they can schedule an appointment, the system already knows to schedule it with one of those three advisors. Right. So the system, when the student looks up for the availability, um, they'll see the availability of those three STEM advisors. Right. And that's great because it creates some redundancy. It creates backups. Someone's on vacation. Someone's out. Someone's sick. It's not, you know, contingent on that one person. Right. So we did that for, for STEM and arts and sciences. And we're doing kind of one and two pairs for School of Ed and for um, School of Business. And Ernesto, when, when we, talk about um student petitions um because that would be i suppose a different term than maybe some of our listeners would be used to what how how do we define that in in this context great question so the the way that that i'm that i'm defining um a petition is really any kind of of request that a student is do is doing so i'll kind of give you the um uh, definition that i use in, in, in the article it, a request initiated by a student for some sort of exception to a stated rule or a policy, for example. Um, some specific examples are adding or withdrawing from a course after a published deadline, 
um, exceeding the number of units that you're allowed to do for a term, um, allowing exceptions to university degree requirements, allowing, allowing some exception to some, some university policy. So those are what, what um, I'm, I'm defining as a, as a petition. And so, I mean, with like the petitions, you know, it's kind of giving advisors more of that decision making. And, you know, in your article, you mentioned like some of the factors where questions that can get asked is like, when will the course be offered again? Is the course a prereq? You know, will the F, you know, let's say student gets in the class, put them on any type of probation or actively disqualify them? Are they close to graduating? Now, some institutions, you know, some of these petitions might be done by, like, say, their office of the registrar or a different office. And, you know, you might have that office who originally or currently does it say, well, we've always done it that way. Or let's say if the advisor does take it on, that's now a kind of another duty that they're adding to their plate. And can they, you know, take on this extra kind of duty and handle everything? How do you address some of those concerns? Those are great questions. And I I think it's good to preface this argument by saying that, this approach that, that, that I'm that I'm sort of pitching here um, is not a one size fits all, right? I think it, it it needs to work within the context of of, of a given university and, and what they do. And you're right, you might have a, a, a registrar's office that that does exactly what I what I outline in in the article. And if that's the case, then that's great. You know, um, I, I, my my argument is is um, both on the why why advising versus a, a different group. I'll start with, with with that component. I think that that um, academic advisors are are unique in in higher education in that there's not. I really can't think of any other group or any other office that has that unique combination of of training and professional um, experience. Where they most 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 advisors that start out at least at least on, on my campus and and I think professionally if you look in the cut of some of the, the the stats it looks like most have some sort of master's degrees in higher ed, higher education administration counseling or student affairs some sort of program um, I'd say the majority not all but the majority have some of that preparation so you have some knowledge of what is retention what are some of the reasons why the literature says that students tend to, to take longer to graduate or to drop out. Um, a lot of them teach some sort of student development theory, right? So what are the things that are happening to students at the same time while they're in school? Um, it teaches about different populations and what are some of the concerns for those populations in higher education? So you have the the, the academic background for that. Uh, but then you also have the understanding of the curriculum, right? You can't be an advisor and not know the curriculum. That's part of your, it's your bread and butter, right? Mm-hmm. So you understand the curriculum. You understand what courses can count for that GE category, but also count for this major and this minor, uh, which ones count for an upper division GE requirement, which ones uh, count for a multicultural perspectives, you know, that kind of thing. So you have this, this knowledge of, uh, of the curriculum. And finally, you have knowledge of the policies and procedures. Another big part of any advisor's job is helping students navigate the university, right? So you have a good sense of what are the deadlines for dropping a course, uh, what's what's the process for, for 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 doing a petition? Even if you're not, if your office is not involved in deciding them, you know usually what the process is, right? How do we navigate the 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 administrative components of being a student in higher education, which is particularly useful for for uh, working with with first generation college students, right? So those three aspects: the grad preparation, knowledge of the curriculum, and knowledge of the, of the policies and procedures. I can't think of 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 an office that, that has that that trio of, of qualifications registrar's office for example they'll they, they'll know the policies 
um, and they might have some knowledge of the curriculum, but they don't necessarily, I don't think they have the same percentage of professionals in their area who are doing higher ed master's degrees, and at least according to the ACRO report, which I cited in the, the article, it's not listed as one of those specific, you know, things that, that, that a registrar needs to have, right? Or faculty, for example, obviously they'll know the curriculum, but they might not know the policies, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of constellation, that triangulation of those three things, I think put advisors in a very unique position to be able to, to, to look at a, at a petition from a perspective that, that I think is, is, is holistic, right? And then on, on the other hand, in terms of taking on those duties and what that means for an advisor, I think that's definitely something that needs to be um, considered when, when trying to make the case to, to take this on, because it is a big chunk of work to, to be added on, right? But I do think that there's some benefits to that. I think it, it gives the advisor some really good knowledge about one, what's this, what are the students going through? Because you have to read the student's justification, right? So you get a better sense. It's almost like having um, qualitative data come into you on a, a steady diet of qualitative data because you're getting these, these stories from students about why they're asking for this exception, what's going on in their lives, what's happening with them. So you, you're more like to have a, your finger on the pulse of what's happening with students in addition to your appointments, right? And that also then informs your appointments, right? Because if a student's coming to you and says, I have a situation, if you've been reading these petitions and you know what's going to get approved and what's not going to get approved or what, what the calculus is there, you can advise, I think, more, more effectively by saying, well, have you thought about this? Or, you know, if you do this, that's, that, that, that might make you eligible for, for petitioning. But then if you do this, then that might not make you eligible for, to petition this, right? As opposed to, well, you can do a petition, but it's with the registrar's office. And I don't really know what, what, they, what they decide on, on to, to, to approve or not approve that. Right. So I think it does inform that. But I think it, it, it has to be done if you're going to take that on as an advising office. You really have to think about the workflow aspects of that. Right. Because I think that that, that is important and that is time that will be set aside that would not be done for appointments. So that is a a, a cost that you need to decide if you're in, a, in an advising leadership, whether that's worth you taking on or not. And I suppose just kind of building on on that in terms of what we're saying about workflow in terms of, of petition, one of the things that strikes me, I, I'm interested in hearing fr- from you is, have you seen, um, you know, COVID impact on student petitions and the evaluation of those petitions? That's a really good question. You know, we, we a lot of the CSUs um, adopted um, different, what they called resolutions, right, or or, or or temporary changes to policy uh, in the wake of COVID, right? And we just, our, our academic senate just um, adopted some some last week. So these include, for example, allowing students to change the grading basis from letter grade to credit, no credit, uh, much later in the term that they normally would, even after the fact, uh, loosening the the, um, the requirements for being able to, to withdraw from a course later in the term, loosening the number of, of signatures that are needed for that. So I think, um, during COVID, it's sort of been put to the side to, to some extent, or at least been kind of, um, a, with broad strokes, basically said, look, we're going to make a lot of exceptions for these students because it's not their fault, right? That, that they're in the situation. And, and how the academic senate came to these was through consultation that we, we reached out and they reached out to us, to us meaning advising and the registrar's office and said, like, all right, you know, we want to look at, at these resolutions again. What are your recommendations? So we provided a lot of the recommendations. So they, what they ultimately passed was 
really informed by by what we were saying was what would be more effective for students. So in the short term right now, we're, we're really um, all on the same page in terms of trying to be as flexible for students in this context. Yeah, and I think whether it's a petition process or it's in this case, like let's say with a credit, no credit or what options should I do? That's where advisors really come into play because they get looked at, not necessarily as like, tell me what option to do, but how do I go about this? What are these differences? Because uh, with credit, no credit, it's like, well, what if there is a, a major that requires a certain grade in a class and the credit, no credit, a credit's an A through C minus or something, but they need a C in the class. And how is that going to work? And if they get a no credit, how's that impact financial aid, even though it doesn't impact the GPA? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely something where advisors really can can benefit and help help students out uh, and students benefit from it. But kind of going back to the, the the change of major, like our office that I work in advising academic services, we actually review those change of majors uh, if a student submits it at a certain uh, unit threshold. So whether they want to add a second major or a minor or, you know, they're about to graduate and they want to try to change their major. Um, it has led to a lot of great conversations with these students in terms of the why. You know, why are you looking to it? What, how is this going to benefit you? Or, you know, you want to do this second major, but, you know, maybe we maybe do a minor in it, um, you know, and then how much financial aid do you actually have left? So um, and it's things I think sometimes students don't know or may not think about. And then I think that's where kind of an advisor can help out with that. And maybe that leads to better decisions with some of these uh, petitions. Absolutely. You know, and that's something that we, we dealt with a lot um, at UCLA. It, it being a, a much more impacted campus, we had a lot of um, restrictions on, for example, we had, a, we had a unit maximum. So students could take only a maximum number of units. They couldn't just remain students for as long as they wanted, right? So if a student did request to change their major, it had to fit within that maximum number of units, right? And, you know, they're on the quarter system. So it was uh, 216 quarter units, which I think translates to 144 um, semester units, right? Mm -hmm. 25% more uh, the, the, than, than what they need to, to graduate. So it was our rule at UCLA was basically, if you can fit it within your four years or two years as a transfer, you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. You know, take as many units as you want, no problem. Mm -hmm. uh, or you can go up to your unit max, but you can't go beyond four years. So it's kind of one or the other, basically. Mm -hmm. But those are exactly the exact conversations I would have with students, right? A student petitions for double major. Well, why do you want to do a double major? Well, I want to be more competitive. It's like, well, what's what's going to make you more competitive? Doing a double major or maybe doing an internship in that field that you want to do right. so that you have more on your resume than just the, the, the degree itself, for example, right? right? Particularly at a research university where the, the majors are not necessarily lined up to be um, job preparation you know, uh, majors, not like, say, a nursing program or, or an engineering program, for example, right? Um, but yeah, maybe converting that to a minor, for example, figuring out what's, um, can we overlap any of those courses, you know? It's like, well, if you take this course, that's not going to overlap with that major. But if you take this one, it will, you know? So that's one less course you need to take. And yes, and then talking about what are the financial aid implications? Have you maxed that out or not? And, you know, for transfer students, that's that's a bigger issue because if they, if they took longer while they were at the community college, they may have used up a lot of their aid, right? So let's figure out what's the shortest route from from here to degree right mm -hmm. so yeah those are exactly the types of questions that we would uh, explore now 
one of the things I suppose we mentioned in your bio was you've an interest in I suppose, looking at, at retention and, and student success and, and kind of, I suppose, linked to um, some of the things that we've talked about in relation to, to um, the petitions and COVID. I'm wondering again, like you're, you're, you obviously give deep thought to a lot of these issues in terms of retention and student success. How, how has COVID impacted on on those and and the your approach or advisors approach to those two areas you know it's 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 been a challenge it's been a challenge because what what's happening and what's affecting students in in their ability um to be able to successfully complete courses is for the most part out of our hands right it's it's out of our there there's not a a, a resource that I can guide them to on campus that will help them with this, that will help them with their family member getting COVID. There's not a resource necessarily on campus that I can help point to, to their family member losing a job. Although, you know, we do a lot of, in terms of the basic needs in our, in our food bank and our, our folks who handle that, they've been great. They've been, they've been doing, um, you know, during the uh, different parts of the, of the term, they've been having, you know, where students can drive in and pick up food from the food bank, for example. Uh, so we're trying to do as much as we can for those areas, but there, there is a limit to what we can do, right? Obviously, in terms of, of helping students with those areas that are outside of, of the university. Um, the other part that I think has been difficult is the, the 100% online learning, right? And that modality. I think, um, yeah, if you had asked me, you know, a year ago, like, hey, I want to take all my classes online. The conversation that I normally have is, well, how self-directed are you, right? How good are you at keeping up with deadlines on your own without necessarily being prompted? Um, and, you know, and we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And for some students, um, it's been a godsend to be online, right? And for other students, it's been a real struggle, right? Because going physically to class is what keeps them honest, right? Is what keeps them on track. Um, n- never mind all the other distractions of what's going on, whether it's COVID, whether it's the political discourse, whether it's um, the racial and uh, intentions over over the summer, you know, all of these things are create distractions for students when they need to be the most self-directed that they can. Right. So that's made it difficult. What we've tried to do is try to ramp up our, our individualization of our services and, and the targeting of our services. So I'll give you an example. When we first shut down uh, in person and went online in the spring, one of the things that we did is, we took, we did, uh, for all first time, um, first year students, we try not to use the term freshman, but all, all first time first year students. So out of high school, they, they had just completed the fall semester and they were going to be registering for the next fall semester. We went through and our peer advisors, which are for students who are trained to, to work with first year students, they basically went through and reviewed every single one individually, just under 900 records, reviewed all of those and gave each student a personalized list of recommended courses for the next semester. So the students wouldn't have to sit there and try to figure out, I don't even know where to start. What's the catalog? How do I find this? We give them all that, you know, how to register and how to look the stuff up, but here's some recommendations for you, right? So personalized recommendations. Uh, we did a targeted, uh, and we're doing that again this semester, a targeted outreach to students who are currently enrolled in units, but are not registered in any units for the next semester. Right. So what's going on there? Right. So we've done that the last three semesters where we'll reach out to those students and try to find out what's going on. What's what's the difficulty? How can we help? Here's how to set up your appointment. If you have questions, 
if you need to take time off, that's fine. There's options for you. That kind of discussion, right? Maybe taking some courses at community college so they're not losing momentum, right? So a lot of that personalized outreach. We did that also for our incoming students during orientation. Again, we had personalized recommendations for each incoming student. We pre-registered them with the help of the registrar's office, pre-registered them in uh, two classes, usually a math and an English course or a math and a, and a general edu- other general education course um, so that they really only had to register for two or three more courses on their own. So really ramping up the, 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 the personalization of this. Uh, we also have mandatory advising for first-year students. So we do the outreach to, to, to those students. So we have uh, multiple campaigns and we're kind of in the process of, of creating more campaigns that are based on on major specific data, right? Now that we're doing the major advising for most of those uh, majors, uh, one of the things that I envision doing is having our major advisors, that, that, that cluster of say, so those three STEM advisors doing outreach to those majors and saying, all right, have you registered for this course? You know, you're in... Uh, math, so you need to have you should be having this course done by this time. That kind of more specialized and, and targeted outreach. I think traditionally the the, the model, um, you know, way back for advising is we have all these services and we wait for for the students to come to us. And I think um, that's that I was already kind of leaning towards we have to move away from that. And I think with COVID, it's just all the more we have to move away from that and just really go out there to the students, especially the students that, based on the data, need the most help. Yeah, and I would imagine like your advisors, as much as advisors at Cal State San Bernardino and other institutions are probably seeing a huge increase in the number of appointments being scheduled um, because this is finals week. We're recording this uh, in December and this is finals week. And usually this is the time where traditionally it's not as busy because students are so focused on studying for their finals and going on winter break. And we are booked. All our advisors are booked and even the different colleges this week, even into next week. Yeah, we're booked. Our December has been booked up since, since the the, the first of the month Mm -hmm. booked up and we're going to open up January um, at the end of next week. We're going to open up January, but we've been booked up. So we do, uh, what we call express advising, which is essentially kind of drop in. So we have a, a, a static Zoom link where we're uh, at eleven thirty in the in the morning and one thirty afternoon, twice each day. We basically have you know you can go in there and ask hopefully quick questions um, to try to have that. And we have you know eight, nine, ten students per per each session. So um, you know they're still coming. You know, and like you said, this is normally a time when it starts to really die down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it might be quick questions, but they might involve long answers. So. Yeah, usually, usually my joke is that you know when a student comes and says, I, "I just have one quick question," it's never one and it's never quick. Right, exactly. There's always follow ups to mm-hmm. it, but I guess connected to that, and I asked this question to a guest a, a few episodes ago, and, and and ask you since you're um, in a leadership position as director of advi- academic advising at your institution. I mean, with everything that has happened since March and going virtual, like an in increase in appointments and having to be more proactive. How's your staff doing? And as director, how do you ensure that like your staff and I guess directly impacted that to your students, making sure that your staff is doing as well as possible? You know, I have to give a, a lot of credit um, to, to my staff and to my associate director. Um, I think uh, we have a really, really incredible group who's um, just really dedicated to working to, to, with students. And uh, just recently, I gave a, a, a shout out to, to them on, on within our, our kind of division, um, because, you know, just like everyone else, we're all experiencing different levels of hardship, right? Um, you know, we all, I think all of us know someone or either know or know, know intimately someone who, who, who's been diagnosed with COVID, right? So it's, it's in our families, it's in our friend circle and our, in our families. 
um, you know, with all the, 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 the issues that are, that happened with, with BLM and, and the, you know, the, the, the attacks on, on, on black males in particular, you know, that has an impact on, on our staff, me being majority minority in our staff, you know, we know people that, 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 or have experienced some of those things ourselves. So we're not immune to, you know, what's going on in society. Right. And what I, you know, I messaged my, my, my staff recently, I said, you know, despite, you know, the global pandemic, racial and political unrest, um, you know, we, we being affected by this personally, despite that our, you know, our team keeps stepping up to serve our students, you know, uh, and they do it with zero complaints. And that's just amazing. So I think for me, the best thing that I, that I've been able to do is really try to listen, try to um, get out of the way in terms of, of when they have an initiative, when they have an idea uh, to, to push forward. Um, you know, if we have some ideas on some, we've had some ideas on like some virtual events and, and some of them have worked to, to varying degrees. And we, you know, we've had stuff that wasn't as successful as we wanted, but you know, that's what happens when you try new things. So try to get out of their way, try to be as supportive as possible. Um, I really am really flexible when it comes to, to time and personal time. So what, one key example here is because we're not restricted to the confines of a typical, you know, nine to five, eight to five work day, I, I wanted to make it not only flexible for my staff, but flexible for students too. So I said, look, if you want to work from say nine to 11, and then you got to do some, you know, whatever, take care of your kids, do online learning with your kids or help a, a loved one and then log back on at three, go from three to six or three to seven. That's fine by me, you know, and giving people that flexibility has been great for them. But it's also great for students because now students can have get an appointment later in the evening than they would have otherwise. Right. So trying to just, again, think outside the box in terms of what is possible for folks um, I think has, has been, been, been the key. And I think giving, giving space to staff to really talk about it. We had a, a session when um, I think after, after the killing of George Floyd, where we had a, a session and it was, it was an emotional session. You know, we just basically all sort of expressed our feelings and, and it was, it was tough. It was tough, but I think they know that, that within our space, we have that freedom to do that and talk about that. And that's not, it's not a waste of time. It's not touchy feely. It's just trying to be a, a human being uh, to, to one another. Um, and I think that's, that's, we all recognize that. And, and I think give each other as much grace as possible when, when, you know, when we say, I, I need a, I need a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think we can hear the, the empathy in, in your approach, which is great from um, a leader. It's, it's so important. <laughs> now, probably as, as we move towards the, the end of the, the interview and uh, we, as Matt said, we are recording this in, in December, but it'll be coming out in January. I suppose interested just to hear, you know, I, I won't use resolution because, you know, um, that, that comes with all connotations, but any particular hopes or aspirations for 2021? I think, um, I mean, I have some, some personal and some professional, right? So in terms of a professional, I think I'm really looking forward to at some point this year, being back on campus, being back on campus with, with, with my staff and with our students I think we're really, um, again, as, as human beings, we, we, we yearn for, for that contact. And I think, you know, Zoom and, 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 and all these tools that we have, you know, do can get us there to a certain extent, but there's nothing like being in the room with someone and just being in the same physical space as other folks. So I think 
we're really looking forward to that and 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 wanting to 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 channel that really good energy that I know we're going to have when we get together to be able to direct it towards you know serving our students. So I think we're looking forward to, to that. Um, I think uh, personally, I'm looking forward to traveling. <laughs> Honestly, like uh, we've just been itching to, to, to travel. So I, I don't know where we're going to go, but we're going to go somewhere as soon as it's, it's safe. Um, you know, and if there's a vaccine, but by the time we we get that, whatever, that's fine. If it's in the summer, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. But I think, I think just being back on campus, being back with our staff, um, is going to do so much for our, our, our morale. You know, it's funny. We talked about this and one of our, one of the advisors said when we first went on, it's like, oh, this is great. Like I'm a homebody. Like, you know, I'm, I'm totally cool. And like, you know, just like thing like last week, she's like, you know, remember how I said that? Like, yeah, I'm done. I need to get out now. <laughs> I, I don't want to be home anymore. So I think we all feel that way. I think students feel that way. I think faculty feels that way. So I anticipate and I really hope that there's just going to be this this wellspring of good feeling when we do finally get back on campus among everybody. We're all going to be so happy to see each other. You know, just going to be like broad smiles across campus. And I hope that 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 honeymoon phase lasts for a while. But Ernesto, we definitely appreciate you being on the podcast. I mean, I think it was a fantastic interview. I think we learned a lot from your background, um, getting into advising, talking about leadership, getting involved in that, virtual advising, training, all that good stuff. Now, if anyone has any questions that they might want to reach out to you, maybe regarding your article or anything that was said during this uh, interview, how can they reach out to you? Please, yeah, you can definitely reach out to me. Uh, you can post my, my, my email. It's uh, ernesto.guerrero at csuci.edu. I'm sure you'll post it uh, on there. That's probably the easiest way to, to, to get a hold of me. But yeah, I'd be happy to, to follow up, answer any questions, um, yeah, any curiosities that you have about that or, or the article. Uh, happy, to, happy to have that contact. Awesome. Thank you again. All right. Thank you. I certainly learned from our conversation with Ernesto about petitions and appeals. It's a very different process than what it is in Ireland, but it's really interesting to hear about it and also to hear his thoughts on training advisors and also on student success. Thanks to JJ and Ernesto for joining us today. We appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you have ideas or questions or you want to get in touch, please do reach out on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. You've made it to the end of the episode. And look out for future episodes of Adventures in Advising. Stay safe. And as always, keep smiling and keep advising. Don't wanna complicate ya, complicate ya, complicate, complicate, complicate.